Hello to my fellow humans with True Crime Obsessions. Welcome back to Crime Obsessed Dog Mom. I am Michelle, the Crime Obsessed Dog Mom, with my co-host somewhere in my house right now. Uh, today we're going to look at a really sad one, but it's kind of popular right now because a recent documentary came out. And uh, today we're going to look at the Girl Scout murders. Without further ado, let's get started. I already said that, but hey, hello. Uh, thanks, as always, for everyone's support. Uh, I think the last time I checked, we were at like 140 downloads, and we had some people actually follow me on Podbean, and I got some friendly feedback on a episode, so appreciate that. Like I said, always open to feedback and getting better and doing better, and I'm doing my best with the research. Um, so yeah, like I said, I, I do appreciate it. It's very interesting, um, this whole podcasty world. And I'm actually going to start doing one for work. I'm not going to like really publish them publicly, but it's going to be something. I work in like training and development and we just kind of were like, hey, let's do something that's pretty popular. Podcast it is. So I'm pretty excited to be able to like use my equipment and I kind of have been telling people at work and that about the podcast now too. So anytime to be able to keep doing this and getting content out there, I think is really cool. Uh, things around here are going pretty well and husband is continuing to recover. He's been in a little bit of pain this week. Uh, he's about three weeks out from surgery. So hopefully... He can continue to heal and get things better. Doggo is good. He's been getting lots of sleep and wanting lots of snuggles lately. And uh, he loves, we have like this little day bed that's kind of high up for him. But I lay down on it sometimes during the day just to kind of get away from my computer. And he'll jump up there. And he's just a little guy, so it's funny. And he's been definitely enjoying it our walks. And we go get up about seven and I try to take him early before I start work and he is so loud and it's so frustrating because I'm trying not to wake my husband up and he's just like oh like so loud and he's very mouthy and it's he's just excited but it's it's just funny because I'm like man you gotta be quiet I'm trying not to wake up the whole neighborhood but then we regardless still wake up the whole neighborhood because we're walking super early in the morning and everybody's dogs are like going batshit crazy. <laughs> so I always kind of feel bad, but he loves his, he loves his life. And I feel bad because I don't like take him on super long walks. Like we have a short walk, which is just like around our neighborhood. And then we have this other walk that we go on that's a little bit longer, but I don't really feel necessarily safe because I probably listen to too many true crime podcasts, but, um, so we, I don't like to go on those. It's like a trail that's by the house. That's kind of sort of safe, but I don't know. And then I kind of have to like walk by a gas station and it has a Dunkin' Donuts in it. So I feel like it's just that time of the day. I don't want to get hit by a car. So, but it's, I feel bad because Rory always, he wants to go for a long walk and he knows if we turn, take this one turn 
we go for a long walk. So we will be on like the inside. There's like a sidewalk on the outside of the neighborhood and a sidewalk on the inside. We'll be on the inside of the neighborhood sometimes. He will pull across the street to get to the outside so that he can go on a long walk. And I feel like I'm ruining his entire life every time I tell him just go on a short walk. So it's, it's been funny. And he, he's, he's so smart because like, he knows that we'll cross the street if somebody else is walking on the, you know, just go to the other side. If there's somebody else with a dog or someone else in general, it can't, doesn't always work because people are really active in our neighborhood. And he, (laughs) he, if he sees someone, I won't even have to say anything or make a motion. He'll just cross the street. Like he'll initiate me going across the street. So it's, it's funny. And it's nice to kind of just, it's a good quiet time in the morning, which I appreciate because I feel like I need more quiet time sometimes. And yeah, so it's, it's been nice and I get to, it's a good way to just kind of start and get my day started and get some calories burned and some active minutes going. And I enjoy it. It's good quiet time. I don't really, it's not quiet because I'm listening to <laughs> true crime podcasts in my ear and normally it's pretty gross and they're really graphic, but who doesn't love that before 8am? And so uh, I'm also pretty excited because work, we do something like, it's like adjusted hours during the summer. So you work like longer Monday through Thursday, and then you get to leave uh, a little bit earlier on Friday. So I'm actually recording this on Friday because I'm off a little bit earlier, which is kind of cool because it's nice to be able to enjoy the weather, do tasks, you know, mow the lawn. I got to mow the lawn later. Just little things like that to get that kind of stuff done on a Friday so you can maybe enjoy your, you know, your weekend a little bit more. It's supposed to be pretty nice. So I'm going to get some lunch with some friends. So it should be a good time. Uh, So I'm excited because then I just feel like on Saturdays I've been waking up and have been not feeling well and I don't want to rush it. I want to make sure I'm doing a good job having, you know, good information out there. So I'm excited to be able to kind of start recording these. It only goes to like Labor Day. So we'll have a little bit of time. But yeah, so let's get started with the case. All right, I don't know why I'm so out of breath. Apparently I need to just take more breaks or something. <laughs> but so yeah, we're gonna, this one is a sad one, but popular right now because it is in the media right now because a it's called Keeper of the Ashes and it's with Kristen Chenoweth, who is a pretty famous actor. She played... Uh, she is in the in Wicked, the musical, uh, El- not Alphaba. She's like the good witch. I can't, I don't remember what she's called. I'm sorry. Um, but <laughs> that's how, where I know her from. And she's got a very unique voice and very just unique. And so she's from this area and she actually was supposed to, she wasn't feeling well, but she was supposed to go to this camp and she could have been there. You know, she and it kind of, that kind of haunts her and it's really really good uh it's heartbreaking because they're interviewing these parents and they're interviewing camp counselors and it was so sad because you can see that it it really truly haunts these people to this day and it was 45 years ago so very sad but i think it's important to kind of cover this stuff when these kind of anniversaries are coming up so the anniversary of it is actually on the 12th. They don't know exactly when the girls passed away. They arrived at the camp on the 12th, but it could have easily been on the 13th that they they passed away. So on 
June 12th, 1977, 140 girls, including Denise Milner, Michelle Goose or Gousset. I'm just going to use their first names like I normally do, but I heard both ways. And interestingly, her parents weren't in the documentary, so I don't know exactly why, but side note. And then Lori Farmer. So they arrived at Camp Scott for like a two-week stay at this Girl Scout camp. Uh, it's pretty, the, the camp is located new, uh, near Locust Grove in Oklahoma, about 50 miles from uh, Tulsa. So this camp has a lot of the normal campy things, boating and arts and crafts and all that kind of stuff, hiking, camping, fishing, you know, the works when it comes to summer camp. And the, the camp covered about 410 acres and it had to be kind of chopped out. On, it was really in the wilderness. Um, and it had a checkerboard of permanent wooden tent floors, like set a few feet off the ground. So essentially they're like tents. They're not like on the ground, like a traditional tent. They're a few feet up. So, uh, it was just kind of normal looking camps. They had some, from the pictures and stuff that I saw, they looked like cots that were in, um, in the, in the tents with the girls. And it offered the facilities for about 140 girls and our children, I'm sure Boy Scouts and stuff. I only know about the Girl Scouts and they had about like 30 counselors for the camp. So all three girls between the ages of eight and 10, which is really hard because that's about the age that I was teaching at the, t when I was a teacher, uh, they didn't know each other, uh, but they were all assigned to a tent. Michelle and Lori, they were super excited about the camp. They were like ready to go. Denise, other hand, was kind of having second thoughts and she was pretty anxious about leaving home. And unfortunately this camp or the tent that they were assigned to was actually the furthest away from the camp counselors and it was kind of like partially hidden by like the showers for the camp or like the, the bathroom area so the girls it was apparently there was some like bad weather and they normally would do like activities and stuff but instead they spent the evening writing letters to their parents and I know they, they said one of the notes that was from Denise, the one that didn't want to end up really going to the camp, pretty much was like, please, pretty much was like, take me home. I don't like it here. You know, I can't get back to you. And her sister, I think her name was Kathy. So that kind of just adds injury to insult. Ultimately, what happened ends up happening. Um, so there was, it was super late at night and there were a couple of counselors like reported hearing like weird moans throughout the camp. One of them got up to investigate and she, they interviewed her in the documentary. And it, the, you can tell this just haunts this poor woman. And she said she did like the thing where you're like walking and you hear it and then it stops. And then she like turned around to go like walk back to her plate, like her, her tent. And then it would start again. So then she'd walk and she said she did that a few times and they didn't like, it stopped so she ended up going um and going back to to the bed and unfortunately the next morning same lady she had got up early and it was carla uh, she got up bright and early investigated and unfortunately here comes the trauma for this poor woman she found the the bodies of she, at first she said that she didn't know what they were and she kind of thought that maybe one of the girls got scared in the night. Remember, the weather wasn't great and like ran into a tree and died. Um, 
but then all of a sudden like they could tell that this they were there were these girls and the way their bodies were it was like they were zipped up in their uh, sleeping bags and like like you were holding the bag over your shoulder because they were like really squished down into the bottom which is just <laughs> so sad um they they look at michelle and Lori had been bludgeoned to death and denise had been uh strangled and at least one of them had been sexually assaulted some places said that they all three of them had been sexually assaulted but in the documentary it only said that there was like one so or maybe i'm getting that confused but regardless all three girls um had had been killed uh their tent was covered in blood and like I said, they had been stuffed into their sleeping bags and they were just like left on a trail uh, about 150 yards from where their camp was, or their tent. They called the police obviously immediately and everybody was getting there. And they said in the documentary that the camp counselors, they're trying to play it off. They were like pretending that they were upset with all the other girls because they kept them up or something like that. So they ended up going and going on like a really long hike because the way like where the bodies were that was like a pretty popular area that was like a walking path so they went on big a big hike to kind of keep keep the girls out of the area and they sent home they ended up sending everybody home and parents are anxiously waiting to pick up their girls and some of them unfortunately three parents didn't get picked up didn't get to pick up their girls and the camp uh, actually closed. It had originally opened in 1928. It never reopened after the murders. It's very overgrown. In the documentary they show, it's so overgrown. All of the buildings are starting to fall apart. It's really sad. So the investigators ended up showing up police, everything. There's a lot of people. They, they interviewed a lot of the cops, uh, some of the crime scene investigators and photographers and they all have very interesting stories. They, the camp counselors, they were informed that only a couple, like, they told the police that up a couple months before this triple homicide, uh, there was a pretty distressing event that had happened. And they had written that during a trainer, uh, during training, like one of the counselors' tents had been rifled through and a note had been left. It stated that we're on a mission to kill three girls in one tent. It was thought of it was just like a cruel joke and was disregarded so near the girl's body there was a large the the one of the source places that i found it said a red flashlight but in the documentary it said it looked yellow and so it was near the girl's body and it wasn't they it, it was wrapped in like a garbage bag and like a hole cut out so it wasn't like a traditional flashlight it's making like a big big light everywhere it was a very focused beam so that you know essentially not wake anybody up it's just a very small beam of light and there was uh, a fingerprint found and there was footprints inside the tent you know in blood and it also appeared that they tried to like clean up the blood in that in the tent area using like towels and like the mattresses they did have a suspect in mind right off the right off the bat and his name was gene leroy hart uh they found a camp or a cave near the campsite that had uh belongings that belonged because some of the 
the camp counselors that says, hey, like we're missing some stuff, glasses and stuff, I think that was what it was, that both they belong to the camp and to Leroy. His name is Gene Leroy, but most of the time they just call him Leroy. Uh, so, you know, moreover, somebody else had written into uh, that the killer, like in the cave that said the killer was here, bye bye fools, 77617 on another cave that was nearby, you know, earlier, about four years earlier, he had broken out of the prison and he had been on the, he had broken out of prison. He had done other stuff and we're going to get into that here in a second, but he had been on the run forever since. And I, I don't understand how you don't catch someone for four years, but I guess, you know, if you're in the wilderness, <laughs> you, you can get away. Leroy Hart, I'll probably say both things. He was a Cherokee man. He had kidnapped and assaulted two pregnant women and he uh, was convicted of these crimes and he ended up going to jail. Uh, except, like I said, he had escaped in 1973 because these murders happened in 77 and um, he possibly hid in that cave and it was actually like nearby his childhood home. Um, in addition, uh, I believe that the members of the local community were sheltering him. Uh, and they found him eventually. It's like this big covert thing. And they like were on the front of the house, the back of the house. And this one police officer like goes all the way into it. And he was like trying to run away, but they ended up getting him. And he was uh, initially charged with the murders of Denise, Lori, and Michelle. Um, and, you know, the evidence was kind of strong against against him at first his first two the the pregnant women they had gotten his victims they had gotten away from him and they noted that he used nylon rope and duct tape on them and those both of those things were found nearby the the girls bodies and some of the duct tape had hair that didn't belong to the victim so could possibly you know belong to them and they even stated too that he he made like weird noises which match the weird noises that those camp counselors had heard that matched what the counselors had heard that night that the murder happened. So evidence was pretty strong against him. Uh, there were several, remember there were glasses missing and stuff that some of the camp counselors, uh, or the, you know, the campsite and they were found in that cave. Uh, but he, a lot of people thought he was innocent. They thought it was kind of like a racial thing. Um, and that he was just being kind of like the scapegoat and everything was very racially motivated, unfortunately. So when the trial started in March of 1979, the local Cherokee Nation fully supported him and even like provided funds for his defense. And the prosecution used the missing glasses, the duct tape and other items found in the cave, some biological evidence like the hair in the tape, and then um, some semen that they had found on the bodies uh, as kind of like the main evidence. And Hart's defense claimed, hey, this is all planted since they really, you know, thought it was racially motivated. The defense claimed that a footprint near that was near that crime, site, uh, crime scene was way too small to be Hart's and that, a, that the fingerprint on the flashlight that they found near the bodies wasn't his. Furthermore, they stated that the, the hair on the duct tape couldn't be proved to be his. And remember, this is like the late 70s. Like DNA wasn't, can't, couldn't really be tested. It's not like today. And, you know, they also said that the semen didn't belong to him. Sadly, <laughs> they ended up finding him not guilty. 
and it was assumed that the jury was pretty swayed since um, there was claims of racial motivation. Though he wasn't found guilty, he did end up returning to prison because he did assault and kidnap two pregnant women. Um, you know, he <laughs> he had sca- escaped, so he had to go back regardless. So he wasn't out in the public, thankfully. Um, he He didn't, like, get a lot of give like a lot of media or interviews but there was that he um he did get an interview with one called the Cherokee Advocate and he appeared to be really candid in the interview um there were no like questions that he wasn't willing to take the they didn't ask him straight out if he was innocent or guilty they kind of they didn't want to like waste his time because he had been acquitted and obviously he's not gonna be like, yeah, actually I was guilty. Um, he was in good spirits. He seemed to be like someone quite hopeful of his future because his future was bright, according, you know, according to him, even though he was in prison and he was, his answers were really eloquent and it, you know, it kind of made it people think that he could have, he could have been your next door neighbor or anyone that you just like passed on the street. Unfortunately, even though he was still in jail for those other things, he died on June 4th, 1979 in the Oklahoma State Penitentiary because he had a heart attack after working out three days after this interview. So that this it's unfortunate. You know, the, the DNA ended up being tested again in 1989. Holla, that's when I was born. Um, but unfortunately, it didn't seem to be a good connection to him and it wasn't confirmed. Um but they didn't actually say that he didn't do it either, but they just couldn't like confirm it. And unfortunately this, there's a lot more about this case too. And I didn't want to like just re regurgitate everything that the, the, the documentary said there's, I mean, they're the, the sheriff in the area is still like working on it, goes out to the site every once in a while to kind of, this is something that just like really plagues the, the community I feel so guilty and, you know, feel so sad for the families and it, it, you can tell that it's just worn on them and it's very sad and I, and I feel so bad for them. I couldn't imagine your kid's really excited to go to camp and then they never come home or they're, your kid is really not wanting to go to camp and you're like, no, you can do it. And then they die. You know, that's, there's like a level of guilt there that you just, I don't feel like you can ever really get back or, or, or anything like that. So unfortunately this case is unsolved and I hope that someday that they, because like I said, this is like plaguing their community still that someday they find out who really did it. There were some other people that, that were like suspects, but they really always kind of kept that, it was Hart that had done it and unfortunately he passed away. So it's kind of hard to continue investigating with like his, his, uh, testimony or, you know, him, you know, talking to him. I do really recommend watching the, it's called Keeper of the Ashes on Hulu. And, you know, there's a different perspective and it has Christian Chenoweth. She's kind of like the, the main person, but it does, go into they do like a really beautiful 
memorial singing thing for them at the end. And I really hope that they can eventually figure this out. It's, you know, 45 years is a really long time to just not have any answers. Well, I do appreciate everybody tuning in today. Uh, Not a super, super long one, which I apologize. Um, It's, you know, when it's these unsolved cases, it's hard because there's only so much. There's not like a a trial and somebody's not in jail for this. Uh, Hopefully, you know, maybe the person that was in jail is no longer around or, you know, the person that actually did it. But I do appreciate it. Uh, There's lots of lots of different source materials about this out there. I'll definitely make sure that I source the Keeper of the Ashes in my source material. Thanks everyone that gives me feedback. I continue to be very open to the feedback. And I know somebody had suggested a Missouri one. I think I just Springfield for my people in that area. Remind me what that one. I think it's like the Springfield 3 I think some stuff just came out about that too. So let me know and check out my source material. Check out the Keeper of the Ashes. Subscribe, rate on all of the things. Um, We're going to continue to do our weekly episodes. I'll talk to you guys more next week. Check me out on Instagram, Crime Obsessed Dog Mom, Twitter at CO Dog Mom Podcast, TikTok, CO Dog Mom Podcast. I need to get better about doing the social medias. Uh, I said that a couple weeks ago. It's just something that I gotta, I gotta work on. I have my coffee, crime, and chills shirt on right now, so I might do a little, a little ticky tock with it on, just to get get the get the words out there. Just if on the social medias, you can just sign, you know, search crime obsessed dog mom, and you should be able to find me pretty easily. Uh, thank you always you know hopefully we can get to 200 over you know next month or next next time i talk to you guys Uh, i appreciate your support more than you know Uh, stay true crime obsessed love on your animals and be kind and i'll talk to you all next week